Hello and welcome back to another episode of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON Field Investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. Today we have very special guest, author Charles Lear, to talk about his brand new book, The Flying Saucer Investigators. We'll get into where the inspiration to write the book came from and what we can expect when we go to read it. So strap on them seatbelts, we're going for a ride. Welcome to episode 58 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peake, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today's episode is sponsored by GD Blings and Things, which will have their store coming soon. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Charles Lear. Charles, welcome to the show. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, you're a part of Flying Disc Press. Um, something I'm a part of as well, and uh, I've seen your new book, which is The Flying Saucer Investigators, which was extremely interesting as soon as i seen the title. Um, so before we get to that, though, I'd like to talk about how you got involved into the UFO field. What sparked your interest? I was born that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, um, uh, I, I spent I read a lot of books, watched a lot of documentaries. I... Uh, I liked I like to take naps to UFO documentaries, I, especially the the ones from the 70s. I really like the uh, synth music, and if you fall asleep during a UFO documentary, it's kind of like baseball. You know, you you probably won't miss a whole lot, and then you wake up and <laughs> there's something really interesting on. And the thing about that is, you can watch the documentaries repeatedly, <laughs> and then get new stuff out of them every time. Yeah, uh, but uh, as far as uh, becoming um, doing any kind of serious research uh it started i've been writing a weekly blog for martin willis over at podcast ufo for oh. about four years okay so that's a lot of blogs and a lot of research <laughs> yeah um and i really like uh i found myself obsessed with getting to uh first sources uh to really because I'd, I'd find stories that have three different versions and the only way to really get to it is find out who investigated it and uh, <clears throat> find witness transcriptions, that, you know, witness accounts, et cetera, et cetera. So I, uh, through doing that, I learned where all the archives were. And uh, then uh, Martin suggested I write uh, a book. Uh, he thought maybe compiling uh, <clears throat> uh, my blogs into a book and I got the idea to uh, write about the investigators. I'm reading John Keel's uh, The Mothman Prophecies. There are all these interesting characters in there. There's Gray Barker, Jim Mosley, uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, and they seemed really interesting, and I wanted to learn more about them. And uh, I did write a few blogs where I did explore them, as like when I was writing about the... Um, uh, the Flatwoods Monster, I got straight to Gray Barker. That was his first investigation. And uh, in any case, I, I uh, Martin uh, hooked me up with Philip. Martin had uh, hooked Philip up with Calvin Parker earlier. And uh, uh, Philip put out, uh, that's Flying Disc Press. Philip put out uh, Calvin Parker's book. That did really well. So um, when Barker... I, when, uh, okay. uh, <laughs> when Martin uh, suggested uh, me uh, to Philip, uh, Philip uh, trusted him, uh, and I pitched the I, this idea to Philip, and he went for it, and uh, henceforth uh, I have a book. <laughs> so yeah, this is, this is like the first time I've ever seen somebody write about the actual investigators themselves. Usually, it's a lot of stories about the same old sightings or or sightings or you know what I'm saying. Yeah, um, well, you find you find you know there are of course books about single investigators. There's a you know book about Jail and Heine came out fairly recently by Mark O'Connell. Uh, O'Connell, I think it's O'Connor, uh, really well written. Uh, and you know, you've got Ann Druffel's book about uh, James McDonald, which I cited heavily in my, my book. And, um, <clears throat> but yeah, as far as uh, looking at UFO history through, from the point of view of the investigators, uh, yeah, I don't, nobody has done that. 
uh, as far as I can tell, and which actually surprises me. Uh, so, yeah, and it uh, it's also uh, I, I found that writing for Martin that uh, 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 basically the the book is history, and I've found I really like to look at the UFO mystery uh, as an historian. I think that's uh, that's one place where you, you it's facts. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're real reports, they're real documents. Uh, I don't have to speculate. I don't have to be a believer or proselytize. I can just write as an historian. Um, and, you know, I don't go down any, I don't get tangled up <laughs> in uh, little controversies for one thing, uh, since, you know, I cite my sources and I, I, I say, according to, according to, according to. <laughs> right. And um, yeah, I, I really like looking at it from that point of view. So, and yeah, the, the, the book was a real journey. I learned a lot. And yeah. also uh, the primary reason, one thing I do on my blogs is I, I put links to uh, my source material. Um, since I couldn't do that in a book form, I actually, uh, I footnoted everything. So the reader, if they're interested in exploring further and uh, going in deep, they can, uh, they've got my footnotes to look at and they can find, uh, find my sources and go look for themselves. Because almost everything I got was um, on the internet. Yeah, that, that's great because I'm, I'm definitely interested. Uh, as soon as I seen that you were writing about other investigators in the field, it was immediate uh, because like you said, no one has ever really done that before. Um, so, yeah, like, well, Aaron Golius has uh, the Saucer Life. He does that if, on his podcast. He he explores uh, a lot of the material I looked at, and I, I'll say he was partially uh, an inspiration. Um, um, but yeah, uh, um, like I said, it surprises me nobody's done it, uh, especially Aaron Golius. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So yeah, um, you're not only interested in ufology, but you're 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 pretty well rounded within a, a couple different fields, um, especially science. I noticed you're interested in geology and pantheology, um, and, uh, and how does I mean that's obviously helped you within the ufology field. I'm expecting, correct? Yeah, uh, paleontology. Paleontology. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah. Uh, I I read a lot of papers uh, when you see articles and. Uh, the science sites like phys.org and uh, Science Daily and et cetera, uh, very often they'll have a link to, to the original paper. And uh, I learned uh, a long time ago how to read scientific papers. Uh, if, if For those who have never done it, if you want to try it, <laughs> you get what's called an abstract, which um, uh, summarizes the material of the paper. This is what I'm... This, I'm writing about, uh, and it, it, it pretty much sums up the whole paper. And then you get into um, uh, the actual research and uh, the, uh, I guess you call it the evidence. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the one place that a lot of people get hung up is uh, materials and methods. And you can just pretty much, it's really super technical there. So, you know, if you don't know what, you know, a mass spectrometer is, don't worry about it. You don't need to know. You can just bypass that, skim it. Uh, if you see it repeatedly, eventually you'll you'll get to know what a mass spectrometer is. Um, but then you get to the discussion and the conclusion. And I found, you know, the more you read, the more you're able to follow that. Uh, so, and that also helped me uh, in actually writing this book in terms of footnoting and, and setting up, you know, my, uh, you know, uh, when, well, for instance, with a blog, you know, the, the first paragraph is basically the abstract. Right. Um, but another, what occurred to me is these interests of mine are also history. It's earth history and life history. So I guess that's what I'm interested in is uh, history. Uh, but another, yeah, another uh, thing about reading scientific papers is, you know, they're, they're arguments. And a lot of times I've read papers where they're using a whole lot of jargon and 
uh, really long-winded and it's like, you know what you get a sense that their argument is kind of shaky and right. trying to make up with it by uh, bamboozling you with uh, jargon. And I found that a lot of uh, a lot of UFO personalities tend to do that. <laughs> uh, so they'll throw out some, uh, you know, once you hear them talking about quantum physics, you should perk up and uh, say, you know what, <laughs> this guy's, you know, like a lot of times uh, some of the more dubious uh personalities what they'll do is they'll they'll lead you down this line of science and then take a left turn into woo world and expect you to trust them because they've already you know uh, dazzled you with their scientific knowledge but I, I find actual scientists tend to do this sometimes too sometimes uh, the, the the lesser ones um but yeah and you know the um uh the best the best scientists, um, my father is actually a biophysicist okay. and, uh, and uh, he was a, a chemist, a chemist as well. And what he said to me was, uh, I actually uh, I put my hand in and uh, writing a paper on uh, geology up in um, uh, Cold Spring, New York and uh, around the Hudson Highlands. Okay. Uh, to do with uh, glaciers and uh, certain uh, the way some of the rocks were arranged, it looked like they were. You'd see a line of rocks and a level, and I kind of thought that maybe it was because of um, uh, they're they're coming upon a frozen lake, and then the the lake eventually, you know, melts and is gone. And I I, I tended to see these rings of rocks at certain levels. Uh, it's, but I, you know, I never managed to get it published, but it was a, a, a really good exercise. But what my father told me is, you know, when he heard I was doing this, I, I've never been to college either. So uh, he called me citizen scientist. Hey, likewise. <laughs> uh, yeah, but my, my, my father said, you know, the best scientists try to prove their uh, hypotheses wrong. Um, so I find that's also an interesting way to approach ufology as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, how does, I mean, knowing this science, how has it helped you with your research into ufology itself? Um, have, you, have you researched anything in particular where science has come into play and actually helped you with that? Um, well, one thing it, it, it uh, gave me was um, how awful the Condon Report was. That's <laughs> a scientific document. It's unbelievable. Uh, the, you know, but also being able to read uh, the parts where, you know, that weren't just abhorrent, um, you know, and uh, they, they did some really interesting work on um, electromagnetism. Yes. This is in the book. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and, you know, what it would take to uh, how, how many, how much Gauss, many, what do you say many Gauss, how many Gauss it would take to uh, stop a car engine. Uh, and they they found that well there's only certain components electrical in in the cars at the time especially during a Leveland, uh, Texas uh, that many vehicles were reported stopped by uh, in the uh, <clears throat> during UFO sightings. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah, it's very famous for that, and uh, there are very few components that would be affected electrically, and they found they they weren't really able to stop car engines. Uh, with their electromagnetic equipment, uh, but th that's actually you know that's a pretty good part. So to answer your question, you know the, when I when I see science combined with ufology, I, I know how to read it. I like uh, uh, scientific uh, coalition for uh, uapology, as they call themselves, or <laughs> UAPs. Um, uh, they put out some papers. Yeah, I've seen them. And uh, <laughs> uh, I. Uh, you know, the one paper about the Tic Tacs, uh, yeah. uh, they didn't have any real data, so they had to, they based everything on anecdotal evidence right. uh, and then tried to make it a scientific paper. And it was also basically self-published without peer review. So, right. you know, that's that's something I realize as somebody who knows science, uh, you know, I mean, bless them for, you know, their approach and their efforts. Um, but you know there are there are uh, 
I'm trying to think of his uh, Sturrock. Oh, um, you know, there, there are journals out there that uh, will publish this sort of, uh, you know, stuff on UFOs and stuff on um, more uh, outre subjects. Um, uh, scientific, uh, the Journal of Scientific Exploration okay. is one of them, um, but, and uh, or the Journal of the Society for Scientific Exploration. And, you know, these are real scientists publishing papers. Uh, there's a bit of peer review in that. Uh, it's not taken seriously in the scientific circles, but at least it gives scientists uh, a place to Put their energies if they're interested in this sort of subject and there are a lot of actual scientists that are so yeah i think it's interesting you brought up the the level land stuff and the um, electrical malfunctions um, i'm actually directing a project that started in october of last year where we're actually looking into these electrical malfunctions that are associated with ufo encounters and sightings um, there's mm -hmm. some really interesting things when you look into this stuff about how they're affecting our technology um, and someone who wrote a really good book was Paul Hynek. Um, he wrote his new handbook to technology, UFO technology or UFB technology. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very interesting stuff. And I'm right on, on board with what you're talking about here. Um, it's just very interesting when it's done the proper way. And, and I am a, a part of the, U <laughs> the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. And I did see those papers and it was a little underwhelming. So I completely agree with you there. Well, good. I, 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 I don't want to slag on anybody, you know. Uh, no, I know. I mean, it's just yeah, they, they do a, a mighty effort. I must yeah, say. absolutely. Um, um, I just think that they that it should be more peer reviewed, like you said, and and things like that should be done more more often with UFO articles, because then when it's not done, we kind of get that pushback, you know, that we're not really doing the proper job or it doesn't get paid attention to as much. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But, but, you know, like I said, I like to look at it as, as, an, as, an, as, as an historian. Um, but you do field investigations, though, right? Yes, correct. I'm a certified MUFON field investigator. I'm also part of their ERT, which is their experiencer resource team. Um, mm -hmm. I've been with them since 2019, so I've been doing it for some time now. Um, I absolutely love it. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, you're you're contributing to the history i mean you're you're getting actually you know witness reports and uh, do you have archives yeah i have archives of every case that i've ever ever investigated um i always mm -hmm. make sure i have paper trail <laughs> um, yeah this way see that the, 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 i'm you know glad mufon's still around uh i wish their archives were more available uh in, in terms of you know a centralized location i've been to david marler's archives oh yes uh, and uh yeah martin introduced me to him and uh, we hit it off and you know he's got the uh, center for ufo studies archives he's got the uh, nicap national investigations committee on area phenomena archives a uh, lot of project blue book files and every you know people are donating their archives to him all the time right and you know it, it's um you know i i think and just in terms of preserving the history, it's really important to have, uh, you know, repositories for the written material. Yeah, I totally agree. And I always make sure that, you know, there is a paper trail. And I think most of us are starting to do this now because, you know, things can be erased online and, and you kind of forget about things that way. Um, so always having that paper trail there always, you know, contains that, that information and, and makes it stay and make it a part of history, like you're saying. Mm hmm Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, and then it gives people a chance to, you know, get to the, the, the real story. Yeah. And uh, I, I interviewed David Marler. Um, great guy. And um, I, I know Philip's sending a lot of his stuff over to him as well. Um, this way it can, can continue to benefit the UFO field. Um, so it, it's interesting. It's great. I love this field. Um, this is why I do this podcast and, and investigate for it. Um, it's extremely interesting and I'm a big history buff too. So I, I'm right there with you with the historian part of this whole phenomenon itself. It's interesting. Yep. Um, so I also know that you're also a playwright, producer, director, and actor. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? 
uh, I've made my my living in the theater mostly as a stagehand. I'm a union uh, IATSE stagehand. I work at the Metropolitan uh, Opera uh, mostly okay. as a welder, and uh, but I also uh, perform regularly with uh, Stag and Lion. Uh, they they do uh, pretty much Shakespeare exclusively. In a, they've got a theater space on West 57th Street in Manhattan in the basement of a church. Uh, and there's Shakespeare. There's some more history, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely history. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had some plays produced, not to, uh, not to great uh, critical acclaim or publicity, but uh, you know, things that I was happy with. But yeah, it's just something I, I've done my whole life. Are, are you familiar with Peter Robbins? I, yes, I am. Yes, yeah, so he's right there in New York with you. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he's just as interested in that stuff. So that's, that's great <laughs> to have another person interested in theater like that. Um, you know, it takes yeah, actually, uh, Ted, uh, Ted Blosher, uh, who, uh, along with Isabel Davis, uh, they, they wrote, um, uh, uh, incident at uh, I think it's a encounter, encounter uh, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Oh and yes. Others in 1955. Yeah, Ted Blosher was also uh, in the theater. Uh, he performed. I think he actually performed on Broadway. Wow. Okay. And uh, yeah, his archives are in the uh, the main branch of the New York Public Library. That's interesting. I didn't know that. See, you always learn something new every day, right? Yeah, that's what keeps us cool. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I guess we'll go ahead and take our break now. Um, and then when we come back, we can discuss a little bit more about your book. Um, so we'll go ahead and take our commercial breaks, and we'll be back right after this break. Okay, do. Did you know UFO Encounters Worldwide has an official website for the podcast? That's right. You can go to ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com today and check out all of the cool content we have on the UFO phenomenon. You can get all of the content and information for each episode on the website. Plus, you can follow my travels and see some of my work. There's even new weekly updates on the UFO phenomenon with megalithic structures and different places from around the world with UFO sightings. That's ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. Check it out today. Have some plans this weekend? Going out with the friends? Maybe going to a birthday party and want to step up your fashion game? Well, check out GD Blings and Things, coming soon, an official sponsor of UFO Encounters Worldwide. UFO Encounters Worldwide wants to hear from you. Have an experience or a sighting you want to share? Contact your host, Jesse Peake, at ufoencountersworldwide at gmail.com today. Are you looking for some new swag? Well, UFO Encounters Worldwide now has an official clothing line and store where you can get your official merchandise. It's storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. You can select from a large variety of all kinds of gear, t-shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, masks, can cozies and more we'll be adding more designs as time moves on but there are two amazing ones on there now and if you're looking to also support the show you can sponsor to our paypal and donate if you like if not that's okay too check out our swag store again that's storefrontier.com slash ufo encounters worldwide today Have you or someone you know had a UFO sighting and experienced some kind of electrical malfunction? Well, we have good news. 
We have started a project called Project Bat Tech 404. Battery technology and 404 stands for an error code you get with technology. You can report your UFO sighting that experienced electrical malfunctions at battech404researchmembers at gmail.com. You can also check out the official website, which explains all of our goals that we're looking to accomplish and how it's going to benefit the UFO community. This is a public project, so we also share the cases we have researched for the project. The website is projectbattech404.wordpress.com. Check it out today. And if you know somebody that has had an encounter, please email us so we can help the research and the data grow. Thank you. The official sponsor of UFO Encounters Worldwide podcast, hosted by Jesse Peake, MUFON Field Investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia, is Gypsy Days Outfitters. Go check out their brand new store over at Etsy. They have a variety for everybody and everything. So check them out today. Again, that's Gypsy Days Outfitters, the official sponsor of our show. All right, welcome back to the second half of episode 58 with our special guest, Charles Lear. And today's episode, again, is sponsored by GD Blings and Things. Their brand new store will be out soon on Etsy, so make sure to check them out when they release. And uh, we were kind of talking about your book in the very beginning of the episode, and I thought we'd be getting a little more about that and what we can expect in your book, because it's very interesting to have some, someone write about the investigators who investigate ufology, which really hasn't been done too many times. And uh, I just want to know what the reader can maybe expect in your book, Charles. Uh, well, I go year by year, uh, pretty much. It's, it's chronological. Uh, there were years when not a whole lot happened. Uh, so we jump a few. But, um, you know, starting June 24th, 1947, uh, the sighting by Kenneth Arnold. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, and I actually start with Ray Palmer. Okay. Uh, Ray, and... Uh, the Shaver Mystery and Amazing Stories. And uh, look, given the time we have, uh, uh, listeners, look up The Shaver Mystery if you don't know what it is. <laughs> but it's uh, really interesting involving uh, underground dwelling ne'er-do-wells who uh, control us up on Earth with uh, mind control rays. Uh, that's it in a nutshell. And um, Ray Palmer and Amazing Stories promoted this story as uh, possibly having some truth to it. Um, the guy who wrote it was Richard Shaver, who is more than likely a paranoid schizophrenic, uh, but they had a, he and Palmer developed a friendship uh, that was really touching and Palmer gave him a place to write and uh, to, uh, to have his stories read. Uh, the readers ate it up. Most of them, some didn't. Some of the science fiction fans uh, uh, thought it didn't belong in Amazing Stories. But in any case, Palmer went on to form uh, Fate Magazine. Uh, Amazing Stories was moving their location and Palmer didn't want to move. And he and Curtis Fuller uh, went and uh, got together Fate Magazine. Uh, in between his... Uh, editorship at uh, Amazing Stories and the uh, Fate Magazine endeavor, uh, the Flying Saucer mystery happened. And Palmer was a little late off the, uh, the starting gate. And he contacted Kenneth Arnold. He wanted him to write, you know, uh, write, uh, write a piece about his own sighting. And then the Maury Island incident dropped in his lap. <laughs> and basically that came about because um, I think it was probably uh, Fred Chrisman. Uh, the two guys, Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl. Uh, Harold Dahl claimed to have seen six donut shaped uh, flying saucers over Maury Island near Tacoma, Washington. One of them seemed to be having trouble. It dumped a lot of debris. Uh, hot, dark, uh, made the water steam, uh, and then uh, a bunch of lighter stuff that looked like newspaper 
they later showed uh, uh, what kind of looked like uh, aluminum debris and slag. Um, and Dahl claimed his son's arm was broken and his dog was killed. And uh, Chrisman claimed that he went out later and saw one of these saucers himself. Well, they contacted Palmer and said, you know, we have some strange debris we found on Maury Island. And Palmer said, well, he told me it's from a flying saucer. Uh, we might have something. And he said, oh, yeah, it's from a flying saucer. And then they came up with the story. So Palmer contacted Arnold because Arnold lived in uh, Oregon. And he asked Arnold if he wanted to go, if he'd be willing to go investigate this story. Arnold was a Palmer. Uh, Arnold was a pilot, so Palmer didn't have to pay for his transportation, but Palmer did uh, wire him $200. So Kenneth Arnold became the very first flying saucer investigator. Uh, and so, you know, after telling the Palmer Richard story, I go into the whole Maury Island investigation. Uh, there are three versions of it. There's the first article that Palmer uh, and Arnold wrote, edited by Palmer, uh, for Fate magazine, the first issue of uh, his um, Palmer, uh, Arnold's own sighting appears and report appears in that issue as well. Uh, then there's a version that in uh, a book called The Coming of the Saucers, published in 1952, that um, the whole Maury Island incident uh, was investigated after Arnold's sighting in 1947. Uh, they claimed it, uh, Chrisman and Dahl claimed it happened in 46. A, a, a common story where uh, people try and, uh, like uh, the, the contactees, uh, all of them uh, after Adamski would say they had their uh, contact prior to Adamski, so a similar kind of thing. But um, in any case, uh, but yeah, the there's a version in the first issue of Fate magazine. There's a version of the story in The Coming of the Saucers, published in 1952. And then there's FBI files because Arnold got in, got in over his head with Christmas and Dahl. He thought he was probably being played. Um, and he asked two uh, Army Air Forces uh, Offices, I believe it was uh, Office of Special Intelligence. Yes, OSI, yep. Yeah, and um, Brown and Davidson, uh, they had uh, talked to him after his own sighting. He asked, and they had offered, to, you know, uh, if he ever needed any help or, you know, wanted to talk to them uh, or had any other sightings that he wanted them to help look into, uh, they'd be willing to help. So he called them up and they showed up. Uh, they weren't impressed, but uh, Fred Chrisman, just as they were getting ready to leave, it was very late at night. Uh, the Arnold and his friend, uh, E.J. Smith, Big Smithy, who was also helping him investigate, they tried to convince Davidson and Brown to stay overnight at, uh, in their hotel room. And they said, no, we, they had the, the Army, the Air Force had been created by, just been created by that time. And they had to get back to celebrate Air Force Day. So they flew back late at night and as they were going to leave, Chrisman said, well, let me get you some material, some of the material. So he went to his house and came back with a cornflakes box full of what looked like uh, probably uh, black lava rock. It probably was black lava rock and handed it to them. Uh, unfortunately, the plane went down. There was a fire, and uh, Brown and Davidson evacuated everybody, got them off the plane with parachutes, and they went down with the plane. Someone called the papers, most likely Chrisman, uh, and gave the local newspaper Brown and Davidson's names before they were released by the Army. Uh, by the Army Air Forces, and uh, when the Army Air Forces released their names, the paper said, wow, we've got a real story here. And also, uh, the, the caller told the paper that uh, 
there was uh, debris from a uh, flying saucer on board. So you had a really good conspiracy uh, published in the paper the next day, which uh, totally freaked Arnold out. Um, so Arnold uh, ended up uh, leaving with his tail between his legs and uh, he was uh, he's still investigated, but he was very much more uh, low key after that. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then we, after that, we get into the uh, creation of the first uh, saucer investigation groups, uh, the International Flying Saucer Bureau, and this is in uh, 1952, and APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, was created just prior to the International Flying Saucer Bureau, but the International Flying Saucer Bureau was the first to actually go international uh, after they'd already named, uh, Bender had already named the organization, it actually did go international. Uh, but they only lasted about a year. Uh, but Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, uh, started by Coral Lorenzen with help from her husband, Jim Lorenzen, uh, they lasted until 1988. Uh, and as you probably know, MUFON uh, came out of the uh, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Uh, it started with uh, uh, Walt Andrus, and I believe John Schuessler was involved, and Ted Phillips. And uh, I don't write about that because that's post. Uh, uh, this is after the period I wrote about, which was uh, up to the demise of uh, Project Blue Book. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the MUFON came out of uh, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization and not under exactly uh, amicable. Uh, 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 in, it wasn't. It wasn't amicable. It was mainly due to um, Andrus. Uh, they they had the uh, Midwest UFO network, and they um, uh, that was the first name. Uh, APRO was uh, really focusing on centralized control, and they felt they needed more autonomy to investigate in their own backyard. So they broke off, and there was animosity between MUFON and APRO for uh, the remainder of APRO's uh, existence up until uh, Jim and uh, Coral Lorenzen's deaths. Um, but in any case, I don't write about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's uh, really interesting because I don't know if you believe in synchronicities, but I literally last night just got done reading a chapter in Jim Mars, Allie and Jen's book, and it talked exactly about the Mary Island incident <laughs> and oh, what right. you just talked about. Now that's extremely strange to me. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I just happened to talk about this today. <laughs> well, good, you were prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very strange. Um, yeah, yes, well, what's it's, really it's... interesting is Fred Chrisman uh, turned up again during the JFK investigation after the JFK assassination. Yeah, uh, Jim Garrison uh, had a trial going on in uh, New Orleans uh, with uh, Clay Shaw. Uh, and Garrison got a letter from an anonymous writer saying that uh, Fred Chrisman was a guy that Shaw uh, would be the first guy Shaw would turn to when he got into trouble. So Garrison subpoenaed Chrisman, and Chrisman actually testified at the Clay Shaw trial. Uh, uh, the the uh, likelihood that uh, the anonymous writer was uh, Chrisman is probably pretty good because <laughs> uh, earlier, uh, even before the Maury Island incident, uh, Chrisman had written to Ray Palmer during the Shaver mystery saying that he and a buddy fighting in Burma uh, had a firefight in a cave with some uh, Daros, detrimental robots, uh, the ne'er-do-wells who control people's minds with rays, uh, and uh, his buddy got a uh, dime-sized hole in his hand from a ray gun, according to the letter from Chrisman. So it seems that Chrisman liked to place himself in the midst of the latest mystery. Um, but fascinating character. Yeah, he definitely was interesting. Um, <laughs> a lot of people say he was giving disinformation out and um, just making stories up to get the attention. Um, but I guess we'll really, truly never know, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was definitely interesting, the story. Yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, getting uh, basically um, 
with uh, APRO, they did a lot of uh, really good investigations in 1956. Um, they got their footing. Uh, it was slow. It was real, you know, kind of amateurish at first. Uh, Coral Lorenzen uh, uh, was still getting over herself. <laughs> and uh, eventually she settled down and uh, it, 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 they got a really good network of people all over the globe, especially in South America. Um, and and the, the really fascinating stories came out of uh, APRO. Uh, the Ubatuba medal, that's straight out of APRO uh, from South America. Uh, the um, and a lot of other really great stories. But then in 1956, the National Investigations Committee on Neural Phenomena got, uh, got started. Um, and the people who started that were T. Townsend Brown, uh, who, claimed to have invent, uh, come, who claimed to have invented an anti-gravity device. Uh, you also had Morris K. Jessup, who a lot of people may know, uh, the, I think he wrote the case for the UFO. Um, and uh, that got involved in the Philadelphia experiment story. Uh, and then uh, you had uh, uh, oh, uh, she had the uh, little listen. I think her, I, I forget her name. But, but in any case, uh, T. Townsend Brown only lasted about a year. Uh, it, one of the stories going around was that he. Uh, People on the board thought he was might be siphoning money from NICAP into his anti-gravity research. Uh -huh. uh, other people felt maybe he was just uh, inept with the finances. In any case, uh, NICAP was having trouble financially. And Donald Kehoe uh, was uh, elected uh, director. And from then on, uh, Kehoe was good to go. Kehoe wrote the very first book on uh, flying saucers. Uh, flying saucers are real. Okay, yes. Yeah, so yeah, I think that was 1950. Uh, and it just preceded Frank Scully's book, um, uh, Behind the Flying Saucers, which is all about the Aztec New Mexico, not all about, but it's centered around the uh, Aztec New Mexico crash, uh, quote unquote. And, um, but Kehoe was convinced from the get-go that the Air Force's UFO investigation, which by that time was under the name Project Blue Book. It was first Project Sign, then Project Grudge, uh, right. a year each, 47, uh, 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 no, 48, uh, maybe a little more than a year. Uh, Grudge got revamped and turned into Project Blue Book, and that was uh, Edward J. Ruppelt, right. uh, who's one of the, the best investigators uh, uh, and most earnest investigators uh, uh, Project Blue Book ever had. But Project Blue Book was going by that time, by the time NICAP got created. And Donald Keogh was convinced that the Air Force was uh, downplaying UFOs and keeping information from the public, uh, and he did his best to pry it loose. Uh, and he lobbied to get them uh, open hearings in Congress, and they actually did get dragged into Congress in 1966. Um, but yeah, the, Donald Kehoe was uh, dogged, uh, but that organization often got a... Kehoe, uh, other investigators often accused NICAP of uh, being more lobbyists than investigators, but they did a lot of really good investigations as well and their their archives are extensive uh, and very interesting i got a, a, a so i got some good cases out of the uh, the nightcap archives as well and and you can find a lot of the you can find some of their case files online uh, nightcap still has a website nightcap.org i believe it's maintained by uh, fran ridge uh, you've, uh, and the Center for UFO Studies also has uh, a website, qfos.org, yes. yes. uh, and you can find some of their files. Um, APRO files, uh, the APRO archives may be released soon. They've been in private hands and, and uncooperative private hands for quite some time, uh, but it seems like they, they might be uh, 
about to uh, uh, give it a, a home where the, the public can actually view them. Um, but so yeah, all the information uh, from APRO I had to get from the APRO bulletin, and uh, that is a really good source. Uh, their their articles are really well detailed. I'll have to check them out for sure. And I know Fran Ridge is running the Mate units now. Yeah, um, yeah, he's still still going. Yeah, <laughs> definitely still going. Uh, I've actually had to reach out to him a couple times um, with Mate hits, so that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting how many of these people are still around. I've actually managed to, to contact some of them. Um, Yo, I mean, it's like it's like now, like myself. I mean, I've been doing this since 2017, uh, mm -hmm. really investigating since 2017. And I don't ever think that I'll ever give it up, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a great thing to do in retirement you know, yeah, when you have true. the time. <laughs> I'm one of the younger guys in it. I'm only 30. So, you know. Oh, right on. I, I, well, that's good to hear, you know, because uh, a lot of people worry that this, you know, we're going to be left with nothing but a uh, uh, Twitter feed investigating, <laughs> Twitter feeds <laughs> and YouTube videos. And that's the extent of UFO investigation these days. That would not so, be you know, good. knowing that uh, there are young folks like you out there doing it is uh, heartening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I'm trying to do a lot of outreach to get more young people involved because I, like like you, don't want it to go and, and just be left to Twitter because that's not a good place <laughs> at all. <laughs> right uh, so, yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, out of all the cases that you've researched over your time, what do you think has been your most interesting or biggest case that you've really researched yourself? Oh, I, I, I've never focused on a single case. No. Okay. No, no. I, I, I you know, there, there are. Or how about this? How about what's your favorite that, that, case? I'll, I'll mention a danger of that too. You know, there are researchers who have devoted their entire lives to a single case. Right. And what that can lead to is, well, you know, what if you find you've, you've devoted your entire life to investigating this and then you find near the very end that it's all you know it it was just there was nothing to it you find a prosaic explanation right you know that's like uh i, I forget the, <laughs> what, what's the word for that <laughs> dissociative um, um it's basically when uh like if somebody joins a cult and then uh the the cult the, the a study was done where um, the researchers looked at a bunch of people in a cult, and the cult leader had um, predicted the the end of the world. The end of the world didn't happen, but the people stayed in the cult and uh, said, "Well, it did happen, just not in the form that uh, we thought it would." Right. <laughs> so you know that they they've invested so much of their time that the uh, that they're unwilling to um you know it changed their minds so you know right. I, I see that as a real danger with just focusing on a yeah. single case I, I totally agree with that i i mean just like a favorite case or something that really stuck out to you in the field that you know you kind of really were like oh wow this is pretty neat. well i mean i have my favorites well i would um, love to hear them <laughs> well the uh i'd say the one of the most uh one that's really fascinating that kind of slipped through the cracks because it happened just after Socorro. Uh, it was on uh, June 2nd in 1964. And this uh, eight-year-old kid named Charles, he was playing in the uh, lot behind his grandmother's laundromat in Hobbs, New Mexico. And across the way, he saw, uh, across the street, he saw a five-foot black top-shaped object and he got the sense that it kind of knew he was there and he moved to, and it mimicked his movements. He would move to the left. It would move to the left. He moved to the right. It moved to the right. Uh, he okay. moved to the left. It moved to the left again. And then it shot towards him and he braced himself because he thought it was going to go right through him. And it stopped right over his head and shot flames down over, shot flames down right on him. And his grandmother watched horrified as this oh happened. He ran, then it took off and he ran into the laundromat with his hair on fire. Wow. A nurse was there doing her laundry as well. She helped put out the fire. Fortunately, his grandfather pulled up and he was taken to the hospital. 
Now this case made the local papers. He was in the hospital for two weeks. His face was so swollen that his nose disappeared. His ears were turned inside out. And he reported he only had itching. It was extreme to the point where people would have to stay with him to make sure he didn't scratch himself to bleeding. But that was it. He didn't, he reported he had no pain. Hmm. And uh, David Marler again uh, was found, uh, he recently found Charles because Charles was eight years old in 1964. He figured this guy's still alive. Right. And David Marler actually found him and interviewed him. The guy stuck to his story. Uh, he hadn't even told his wife. His wife was quite surprised to hear about this. Um, so, yeah, it's quite an intriguing yeah, case. Also, intriguing. Uh, Dr. James McDonald interviewed uh, the mother, the grandmother, and Charles. And those tapes are archived in the uh, University of Arizona um, in James McDonald's archives. And I've heard the tapes. Uh, David Marler played them on a podcast UFO, Martin Willis's podcast. And, you know, they're, they're fascinating. It's right around the time. I think Charles is a little older, maybe 11. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the tale they tell is just like, wow. Yeah, that's really <laughs> interesting. I never heard that case before. I'll have to look into that for sure. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, so we're actually at the end of the show. Do you want to tell everybody where they can find your book and where they can get in touch with you? Uh, good old Amazon.com. And uh, I think Flying Disc discpress.com as well uh and i can be found at a weekly blog at podcast ufo um and i also do an audio version of the blog uh that's posted on martin willis's youtube channel okay and i did put all your uh your bio into the description of the episode so anybody wants to see that they can they can view that um, and I really want to thank you for coming on today, Charles. It was uh, actually a really interesting conversation, uh, one that I haven't had before with anybody. So thank you for that. Well, my pleasure. Great to talk to you, Jesse. Absolutely. And we'll have to have you again, uh, on again in the future. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you. Yeah, anytime. Uh, one, one great thing about writing this book is I finally get to talk to people about UFOs who aren't going to roll their eyes after five minutes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> We're all friends here, right? <laughs> right on. Awesome. So have a great day. Dude. Yes. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to today's episode. And uh, we'll be back next week with another great episode of UFO Encounters Worldwide. And until then, keep your eyes in the sky. Well, I want to give a big thank you to Charles Lear for coming on today to talk about his brand new book, The Flying Saucer Investigators. Definitely learned something new today as we do every day on this show. Next week, we have special guest Alan B. Smith to talk about his brand new documentary called Half Light. So that should be a really interesting episode. And please remember to check out our brand new sponsor, GD Blings and Things, when they drop their new store coming soon. And until next time, remember to keep your eyes in the sky.